Thanks for joining us on the Kingdom Roots podcast today. Before we jumped into the episode, I wanted to let you know that Scott and I are doing a webinar on Monday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Central on the five advantages to teaching and preaching Romans backwards. Romans is such a challenging book to even have the thought of teaching. Scott has a very helpful framework with really starting with the community that Paul wrote the, the letter to Romans to and how that informs us in what he says in Romans 12 through 16 and the rest of the letter and the great theological truths that he unpacks in Romans. So we hope, we'd love to have you join us again. It's on five advantages to teaching and preaching Romans backwards. It's going to be Monday, June 24th at 1 p.m. If you're not able to join us live, we'd still love you to join us um, and catch the webinar. You can sign up and register to participate at the website that I include in the show notes below. So thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Tim King on his new book, Addiction Nation. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are a former student of Scott's, and before we turn Scott loose and let him ask the questions that he has, you told me a little about your interesting uh, entry into being a, a student of Scott's. Why don't you, could you like share that story a little bit of, of how your first Scott, class with Scott went? Oh, oh. <laughs> So you may not I, even remember this, Scott. I don't know. This will be fascinating. I, remember, I think I know the first class I had with Tim. We'll find out. Let's hear. Yeah. So I show up at North Park University where Scott was teaching at the time, and I was a new student. And by the time I was able to sign up for classes, Scott's Jesus of Nazareth class was already full. And so it's an early morning class. And what I did was I just showed up, and the first day I asked him if I could sign in, and he said, "Sorry, we don't even have enough chairs." And so then I showed up for a few weeks and eventually some of the people who couldn't rise that early uh, started dropping out. And I think it was after the third week of just showing up without actually being in the class, Scott finally signed the paper and let me join. <laughs> I don't remember that, but what I remember about, okay, Chad, all right, this is, I remember, Tim, you were the first student I ever had in any class who had a computer in the classroom. You had a little laptop and you sat in the back row by the door and you typed away with utter quietude. Is that right? Um, quietude probably only in the class after that. No, I mean, I couldn't hear the keys. Oh yeah, I've, I had found a, an incredibly small, long battery laptop. It was one of the first of its kind. So yeah. that was... Great for me because I can't even read my own handwriting. <laughs> well, I, you were you were that key. I, I I remember watching you type and it was quiet. I didn't hear a thing. I thought perfectly fine. But yes, you participated in the class. And Chaz, this is the class where I first articulated uh, the significance of what came to be called the oh, Jesus okay. Creed. I called it. I think. During Tim's class, I was calling it the Shema of uh -huh. Jesus, maybe. Wow. Well, that was a pretty significant class then, because that obviously is something that you've had a, has had a huge impact. Is that right, Tim? Tim, weren't we, weren't we saying the Jesus Creed at the end of class? or? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Shamao Israel. Yeah, that's and, right. And that was also when you were talking, I think those are the early times when you started sharing the story of waking up in the middle of the night and just coming back to wow. that yeah. as, as a prayer and as a meditation. Okay. So yeah. I've, I mean, yeah. Scott, every class I've taken with you, we've said that. Um, and if we haven't, yeah. one of the students makes sure that we <laughs> make it a priority. Um, and so that's fascinating. Well, I've not heard that, that background to it, that this is where it all started. It was, and Tim was in that class. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. It's a great kickoff to our conversation, Scott. I know you got some questions for Tim and his new book and kind of yeah. his story, which just is addressing such an important issue today. Well, yeah, and I'll say a couple more personal things. Number one, I had two of Tim's siblings, Dan, who went, I think, by Danny at the time, and his mm -hmm. sister, Abby. Um, yeah. Tim was, uh, I don't mind saying this now, I probably wouldn't have said it then, uh, was clearly in the top five students I have ever taught, uh, very intelligent. He's also a worship leader at the, at, I remember in chapel. I had no idea you had uh, musical abilities. I go to chapel one day and there's Tim slamming away on his guitar. And uh, then when Tim graduated, uh, uh, I remember having conversations about whether he should go on to do a PhD or go work with the homeless in the city of Chicago. And I remember trying to convince Tim to do a PhD with Stanley Hauerwas where he had been admitted and Tim chose to work with the homeless. And in, in some ways, uh, that kind of ministry changed your life. It did. And I think for me, too, that experience of understanding more about Jesus and diving into the Gospels, the biggest thing that I, I felt I needed at the time was not, not more of the kind of the education, but figuring out what it actually looks like. Yeah. That was the, the hard part of you know, to come in and to say, I love my neighbor as myself when my neighbor is a homeless youth who's just been kicked out of their house. What yeah. does that look like? What does that feel yeah. like? And those were my next steps of figuring out what, how to, how to embody that kind of love. Okay. When, uh, when I was teaching at Trinity, uh, early in my career, I had a colleague who was, uh, his name is Murray Harris, who was my mentor as well. Uh, a man I looked up to and still admire deeply. Murray Harris told me in his life, uh, I asked him one day if he knew who Jim Wallace was. And uh, Murray said, yes, I know who Jim Wallace, and Murray's a New Zealander, an utter, utter gentleman. He said, yes, I know who Jim Wallace is. And I said, what was he like as a student? And Murray, who would never say negative things about people, said this, Jim Wallace had more integrity between what he believed and how he lived than any student I ever taught. And he said he didn't spend his time so much in classroom, but whatever he learned in a class, he believed had to be practiced thoroughly and radically in life. And so Jim ended up leaving Trinity. And here's the, here's the reason I would say it. I would say this for two reasons. Number one, Tim was the same way. Tim understood the significance of the Jesus Creed and to live it out. And so Tim did not pursue an academic career. He pursued, like Jim Wallace, he pursued a life uh, that would try to seek, uh, tr would try to live that out. And then uh, to turn this into a circle, Tim becomes Jim Wallace's uh, assistant at the Sojourners Community in Washington, D.C. 
and works with him and uh, truth be told, probably helped him write some of his books. So I've, I've been following Tim uh, ever since he left uh, North Park uh, because I think because he had the courage and the moxie and guts to live out what he thought was true about the way Jesus calls us to live. So that's who Tim King is. And Tim has written this new book, Addiction Nation, because of his own experience with some surgeries and some opioid issues. And Tim, I'd like you to give us a bit of a summary of your life story of why this book came into existence and what you hope to accomplish with it. Well, thank you, Scott. And first of all, um, you know, you've got me blushing over here on the other end of this microphone uh, and so appreciate you as one of those professors who encouraged all of that within me and helped helped me think about the applications of what I was learning in school and to mm-hmm. dive into Jesus right. as a figure, not just to be intellectually curious about, but to be transformed by. And that that was a huge turning point for me, the way that you brought the life of Jesus alive in that classroom and helped me understand my faith in a new way. And as, as you said, I head out, head out to Washington, D.C., and this was almost 10 years ago now, and wow. I had a routine procedure go wrong. And the next thing I knew, I'm in the ICU. Uh, the doctors have given me a 50-50 shot of whether I live or die. My family's come in to my bedside to say their goodbyes and to say their prayers. Uh, I pull through, but it's months in the hospital. And all that time, I'm on increasing amounts of narcotics. First, it was just morphine. Then it was a stronger version called Dilaudid. Uh, then on top of that, they started giving me fentanyl patches. And that fentanyl, um, I'm sent home on that. And I knew when I was in the hospital that I was facing these, these life-threatening complications. But I didn't know when I went home that I was facing a new complication. And that initial dependence on opioids had turned into an addiction. And for me, one of the most dangerous things was I had always had in my head that uh, the only people who get addicted are bad people, right? That addiction is somehow Mm -hmm. a manifestation of an underlying moral depravity. And so I had three different times I had doctors tell me that I was faking my pain medicine or faking my pain in order to get more medicine. And so I was defensive at this point. I saw doctors as a way, as as people standing in between me and the relief that I needed. And one of the things that I, I try to communicate in this book is this isn't a story of here's what I did, try to do it like I did and or other people should follow me. But what I try to tell is if everybody had what I had, if everybody had the grace that I experienced, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so I had a moment in a doctor's office where my doctor looked me in the eyes. He said, Tim, you need to know you're addicted, but you didn't do anything wrong. Hmm. Hmm. And that just put down my defenses. Cause if he had said, if he had come at me with judgment and blame and condemnation, all he would have met was my defenses and my need to prove that underlying pain. And that was why the second thing he said was so important is he said, I also, he goes, I know you're still in pain. 
And as I've researched more about addiction and I've learned different people's stories, I know mine started in the hospital, but any addiction I believe is always rooted in some sort of pain because all of us carry within us something that we're trying to trying to soothe or trying to ease the suffering of. And that's where the mistake I think we make too often with addiction is to think of it as some sort of abandonment of serious moral pursuit in, in light of just wanting a kind of a gluttonous desire for pleasure or for more. When in fact, I think of addiction as much more like a faith gone wrong, where we're pursuing something higher. We're pursuing some sort of transcendence. We're pursuing some sort of connection. We're pursuing some sort of moral good that eventually goes awry. And that's where faith and addiction have some similarities because both are categorized, both we can understand that they, what they are because it's a persistence in spite of negative consequences. And in, in faith, that is eventually an opening up towards a greater love and to grace where addiction, it starts to fall in on itself and compound all of the negative consequences. Tim, when uh, I had surgery in about 2002 on my shoulder, and my wife is a psychologist, and she said uh, something like this, either that she said it in conjunction with the surgery, before the surgery, or I had so absorbed it through different comments that she had made over the years that I was alert to this. But the doctors gave me a really strong Vicodin, I think. Is that a really strong pain medicine? Um, and the first night I took that drug and it worked and I slept all night. And the next day in the morning, the first time I felt any ache in my shoulder, I wanted to take another pill. The doctor, I think had only given me six. He may have given me 10 and I don't remember. I think there was a, a, a limit on how many they could give you. But I remember the next morning thinking, oh, I, I kind of need that pill. And I said to Chris, I'm not going to take this pill. I'm going to see how I do throughout the day if I can get by with it. But I remember then reading and Chris talking to me about this, that it is right there at that time that it could easily have become an addiction. You start taking Vicodin for a couple days, and you might not know the difference between the days you need it and, you do, and the days you don't, but it feels good and it's comfortable. And uh, so uh, ever since the, I, I had that surgery, now I've had other surgeries on knees and things, and, and I don't remember ever having these kinds of issues with, with pain drugs. But what your doctor said to you, uh, you know, you, you need to realize that you have an addiction and it's not your fault. This is, this is a very important point, I think, for many people to hear. And so, and I know, Tim, that you've been doing research on this. Tell us a little bit about what you would call, like, say, the opioid crisis or, the, yeah, I think you call it the opioid crisis in, in our culture. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and first of all, one thing that I think is interesting with your story and is important to communicate is that opioids can be an important medicine. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. And this is a good theology. And this is where I kind of draw out. Right. We learn in Genesis, God created everything good. Yeah. And what we call sin is not something new. It's the disordering of that which is good. 
And that's where addiction, right? We can't demonize the substance itself because for me, before, uh, before opioids became something I was addicted to, there was something that very well could have saved my life. Yes. Uh, because I, my body was in so much pain. I was in the ICU. I was in acute respiratory distress. If I didn't have that medicine, my organs could have kept shutting down and that could have spiraled out of control. And so I, I think it's so important that awareness of your relationship, whether it's a substance or a behavior or even a particular theology or idea of God, what is your relationship to that? And is it coming, moving into that place of addiction and dependence in which it's going to worsen and spiral down on itself? And one of the things that I think is interesting with, with the opioid crisis and looking at it on a, a macro level, uh, first is whenever you have an epidemic, right? You can ask about the, the new thing the, that has been introduced into the environment. So in that case, we can look at opioids. We can look at, in 1996, Oxycontin was first approved by the FDA. They said it was minimally addictive. And we've, a lot of us have now heard the role that um, companies like Purdue Pharma have played in knowingly deceiving doctors about the addictive nature of the pain medicine and even using numbers where they knew people were overprescribing um, to go and sell even more drugs. And so we've heard, I think a lot of your listeners have probably heard about the role that big pharma has played. But then the other question, whenever you have an epidemic is, is there anything that has changed in the host environment? Is there a new weakness that has occurred that makes people more susceptible to this kind of thing? And so when you look at opioids in particular, um, a lot of people are aware of endorphins, right? They're called sometimes the molecules of, of, of emotion. And the word endorphin, we discovered, a scientist discovered them in the 1970s, and he named them endorphins because it's the combination of two words, endogenous and morphine. So endogenous <laughs> occurring within. And when he saw them, he, he realized how strikingly similar our endorphins were to morphine. And so when you look at this spike in opioid use in particular, what do our endorphins do? They make us feel loved and they make us feel connected. And so opioids mimic those feelings of love and connection. So if you're somebody who is increasingly isolated in your life, as we know, if you are looking you know, from the right side of the spectrum, you have a lot of Charles Murray. If you're on the more left side of the spectrum, you have <clears throat> um, Bowling Alone and Robert Putnam talking about the increasing isolation and disconnection of our society today as an epidemic that's also connected to suicide rates, to different mental health issues. People are turning towards a drug that mimics what they need and what they're searching for. Mm -hmm. And when you look back, and one of the interesting things with the opioid crisis is it's actually one sub-crisis of a larger overdose crisis that we've been has actually been going on since about 1979. So every nine years, researchers have seen now, since 1979, overdoses in the United States have doubled. Wow. That means when I was born, overdoses were still relatively rare. But today... Overdoses, drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death in people under the age of 50. Wow. This wow. has been a dramatic shift over the course of the past, <clears throat> you know, few decades that we are just starting to realize. And opioids 
are just the most recent manifestation. One of the other things, dynamics that I think is at play, and this is dive into some Rene Girard and scapegoat theory, is our first spike in the overdose crisis was starting in the 1980s around the um, increase in the use of crack cocaine. And what I think happened there was we saw that increase in addiction. And instead of asking why, why are people turning to crack cocaine? What's going on in society? What's going on in culture? What's going on with our economics? What's happening in these inner city neighborhoods that people are turning towards the substance? Uh, we criminalized it. We criminalized addiction. And that just spiraled down into increasing crime rates, increasing murder rates. And by the time you, you see those things leveling off in the mid-90s, I think we, we thought, all right, we found the scapegoat. We have blamed people. We have blamed specifically black men. And then there's also the crack, the idea of crack babies, the idea of welfare. Queen. We have found our scapegoat and we have cast them out into our prison system. We've created mass incarceration. And so just as that is declining, we have Oxycontin introduced. And it's not prescribed in inner city areas. It was, and study after study shows that doctors um, would not prescribe as many narcotics or strong narcotics to black or brown people, whether it was conscious or subconscious, with some idea that they were going to be more prone and more susceptible to addiction. And so what happens by the mid-1990s, um, <clears throat> black and Hispanic Americans were slightly more likely to die from an, a drug overdose than white Americans. It was pretty close, but slightly more likely. And today, white Americans are significantly more likely to die from a drug overdose than any other group. And I think that was because of that failure to understand what was happening, where mm. we created a scapegoat, we sent them out, we thought we resolved the problem. And like Rene Girard, you know, often predicts, there will be enough evidence to fool you into thinking that you have somehow solved this problem. But when you fail to deal with the deeper underlying issues at stake, it's going to bubble back up in a deeper and more significant way. And that's where we're now seeing this crisis across white communi communities across the country mm -hmm. because people thought, I'm not supposed to get addicted. Doctors were prescribing yeah. people and they didn't yeah. have that self-awareness wow. that I too am susceptible to this. Okay, Tim. All right. This is unbelievable analysis. And I hope, I hope everybody uh, who's listening will buy your book and start thinking about it, especially leaders in churches. Tell me, Tim, we only have a few minutes left. What are a, a few things you would say to pastors and leaders in churches, seminary professors like me to advise people to do? Uh, Read Scott McKnight's commentary on, <laughs> on the Sermon on the Mountain, especially that the was relevant. That, okay, that was obvious. <laughs> um, the passage, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, <laughs> right? Because one yeah, thing that I think is problematic is the ideas of perfection that we have of trying to attain um, this perfect place where we need to achieve moral blamelessness as opposed to, as you so well dive in, the idea of a wholeness and an idea of this passionate pursuit of God and God's love, and, and specifically the, our ability to love our enemies as ourselves. Yeah. Because one of the things that we fail to understand is that addiction thrives in silence. 
and it thrives in shame. And yeah. so when we're silent about it, when we feel like we can't talk about it, it's going to make an addiction worse. And we also need to understand that relapse is a part of recovery. And yeah. I like to say, let the person who has never relapsed throw the first stone. And <laughs> one of the authors that I cite, Gerald May, his book, Addiction and Grace, May, as a lifetime counselor, talks about how he believes that all of us are addicted. The addictive process is at work in each of our lives. Mm. And that it's just a question of what is it that we're addicted to? And drugs and alcohol are just most often the most common starting point. And if we're able to understand those ways of treating each other, that we can create a culture of grace and a space for help, that is going to be incredibly powerful. And one other study I share with you, these two researchers, Leek and King, they went to three different alcohol recovery centers and they studied a whole bunch of the different patients that were there. And they made a list of all of the people that they said were most likely to recover. And so they give this list to the staff and the counselors and then come back a year later to see how their predictions had gone. And sure enough, they were spot on. So everyone wanted to know what had you figured out? What was it that allowed you to predict who was going to recover? And the trick was nothing. They had randomly assigned each person oh my that goodness. list. Oh the my only thing that changed was the expectations of the staff and the counselors. Hmm. That is why wow. it matters how we talk about this issue in church. Yeah. That's why it matters the kind of culture we create and the kind of grace that we can extend towards others because we learn from Jesus that it is that grace that ultimately transforms us, not the punishment that we, not the punishment for our sins, but it's that grace that God extends. And, and that we punish ourselves with, with uh, guilt or anything else. Tim. Uh, so I, I think, you know, uh, in looking through your book, my wife read it as well. I believe that churches need to overtly, consciously, intentionally bring this issue to the surface because there's more of this going on than we are aware. I, I had a conversation with someone the other day who told me a, a very well-known professor is uh, addicted to edibles. I'd never heard of edibles in my life. And these are uh, apparently pot in as chocolate or something like that, or little cookies or something. And uh, totally surprised me because I met this person, uh, professor, um, some years ago, many years ago, and I would never have expected that sort of thing. But this person is struggling with a lot of pain, and this is how the person is dealing with it. So to me, I believe that we need to bring this kind of topic to the surface. And uh, we need to be overt about it, and, and we need to get people to read, read this book by Tim King on Addiction Nation for pastors and leaders in churches to have, uh, let's say, a, a benchmark or uh, a data bank of things to be able to bring up as they're teaching and pastoring people who really exist in our churches. So, Tim, I just want to thank you for your life, for your uh, story, uh, for the honesty and uh, authenticity of telling this story, and for your desire to make a difference by writing about this and trying to help other people. So I want to thank you. 
Well, thanks so much for having me, Scott. And thanks for being early reader and some of the research I relied on. Yeah. Well, this goes back to also to that previous book you were writing on your own story before, remember? Yeah. I ended yeah. up kind of taking a few of those chapters, especially yeah. at the end about resurrection. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one of the powerful things that we can learn is that resurrection's not just the restoration of the old, but the promise of something new. And yeah. I believe that as we surface these issues, as we talk about them, the opportunities for our churches is to be stronger, to be a better community, and to be the kind of light that wow. people are attracted to. Couldn't be said better. Very Thanks good. Again. Very good. Thanks. All right. Thanks again, okay, Tim, yeah. for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, as well. I want to encourage you, first of all, to grab a copy of Tim's book. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Um, no greater topic to talk about in conjunction with the kingdom of what we're all about. People trying to help people who are hurt, filled with pain, find healing in Jesus. And um, that's that's all of us who are hurt and in pain and need of Jesus. So um, I want to encourage you to do that because we just um, very skimmed the surface of, of all that Tim goes into. Also want to remind you of the webinar that we have coming up on Monday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Central Time. Scott and I will be talking about the five advantages to teaching and preaching Romans backwards. We would love to have you join us for that, as well as let you know from here on out in the summer, Scott and I are going to be taking a little bit of a break from the conversations, but I'll still be bringing content to you in the way of um, either lectures Scott has done or other New Testament-based um, lectures that we'll be posting something every other week so you can kind of stay in the loop and stay plugged in um, to some different things that we have going on in the way of our kingdom conversations. So thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taken taking root now.